And now, it's time for the TechEU Drive at 5. Let's do this. All right, all right, all right. You have found it. This is the TechEU Drive at 5. I am your host, Dan Taylor. And we are the bowl of walnuts you're looking for. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Yay, it is officially, officially, it's officially summer. And it is afternoon, which means, do you know what that means, folks? If you're listening to the podcast, oh. dear listeners, Dan is having a brisket. Oh. oh, it's about freaking time, isn't it? It's Friday afternoon. Let's kick this off. We got a lot of news happening this week. I see Fiona's pouring a beverage. She's up first. She's got some news. Maybe did that beverage arrive via a starship, Fiona? <laughs> uh, first of all, I just want to say this is water. Um, and yes, how exciting is this? Well, I got fierce excited about it. I'm not sure how anybody else felt this week. But finally, Bolt and Starship, they're the ships that we have been looking for. So um, the two Estonian companies have joined forces and that will see um, people using the Bolt app in Tallinn um, will be able to order our goods via robot, which is great. So obviously they have the robots here via the Starship app. Bolt, it's usually a car or a rider that brings them on their bike, but now we will be able to get robots here. And I'm very excited about it. And the thing is, the question is like, why didn't they do this sooner, you know? So um, I had a chat with the Starship co-founder and CTO, Ahti Henla, and he was telling me that the company were basically just waiting until they grew up. So now that they're making money, they're in a position to offer delivery services from the likes of Bolt. But also note that Starship's already had some partnerships, like in the UK, they have the likes of Co-op, and in the States, in some college campuses, they use um, their with on the Grubhub um, app. So the robots have also announced that they have like a, a, a completed a milestone. This um, is 5 million deliveries, which is kind of like exciting when you think about it. I think they told us the last time we spoke to them that they're five years in commercial operations. So in five years, 5 million deliveries, that's pretty cool. Um, also, um, if you do have a read about uh, the interview that we did, um, you can see how cute and flash these robots look with the new boat wrapping. Um, obviously, I'm very excited about them, but you just got to see them with their little boat. They're just so happy, little robots. I mean, five million deliveries in five years is pretty good. Uh, I, you say it's water. I'm, I'm gonna believe you. <laughs> I think. Do you know what? I'm gonna backtrack a little bit because I think I got so excited about my cold and tasty uh, brew dog beverage here. I forgot. Dear listeners, uh, we have an, a guest with us today. This is Early Bird Venture Capitals. Now, I, she, she says Marika. I say Marika. Let's just call the whole thing <laughs> off. But it is Marika. Marika is going to weigh in on some options with us. I mean, uh, Starship and Bolt. What, what do you think? Is this a marriage made in heaven? Yeah, I think it's amazing. I would love to have one here at home, actually. Do you not have any robots, No. No, not yet. This is something that you probably do have. In fact, you do, because I've used Bolt scooters when I was in Germany. Um, so the new Bolt 6 scooters were unveiled. This is the sixth generation of the Bolt scooter. Uh, they've got some pretty good updates to them. Um, they have an LCD display, which is handy because obviously you can see 
what's going on on the display, like in terms of battery, rather than having to look at through the app on your phone. Um, they also have a larger front wheel and suspension, so that's going to give a lot smoother ride for going up and down on the pavements. Um, also, they do have a heap of new sensors on them, so they are going to be able to detect if you're riding tandem, skidding, braking quickly, or obviously if you're involved in a collision. So it's probably going to make riders ride a little bit more sensibly. Hopefully, and I'm talking about myself included. Sure, I'm always definitely pushing the boat out when it comes to a bolt scooter. Um, so there is not enough. Um, if that's not enough to kick riders into touch, then they also have some new safe parking technology. So, um, at the end of a boat ride, generally you have to take a photo and send it, and then they'll end the ride just to see where it's parked. Um, now they're going to be able to tell like if the scooter gets tilted or if it's on its side and yeah they're just there's some new things in it there that are going to make sure that both scooters are parked correctly and we all know how important it is to park in the city correctly to remember what happened in Paris. Anyway um, what I did find very disappointing about this though is that they is there's nowhere to put your mobile phone like I don't know why that's not a feature on scooters. Um, maybe this is something that's coming, but um, I didn't see it on any of the images. Um, and I just think it's be so useful. Like if I'm using a bolt scooter in a different city, or even in Tallinn where I don't know where I'm going, um, it's very annoying if I don't have the map in front of me. So yeah. So Marike, are you a scooter rider? Yes, I am from time to time. So I think it's actually, so I love it, the new version pretty much, although I'm also a bit afraid of it. <laughs> I'm also not not a very good scooter driver, to be honest. Um, but I mean, at least now the throwing of scooters into rivers maybe then comes to an end. That happened a lot, at least in Germany. So maybe, uh, yeah, this is then a good thing for security reasons, economics, but obviously also from a sustainability perspective. Yeah, I think they're definitely going to start seeing a lot more sense. And I do know that, um, say, in Talon in particular, they were calling for better sort of rider behavior for scooters because they they've got a couple of mate they've got a couple of brands here, and um, even just lately, I've noticed that if I go near the old town or certain areas, then it's restricted straight away on the scooter, which makes me at least thirty seconds late for things nowadays because I keep forgetting I'm a restricted zone. So anyway, um, another story that I'm going to talk about is um something from over the water in um, Helsinki, well, in Finland. Um, so this is second-hand news that I saw on a post in on LinkedIn last night. So Maria01, who are the Helsinki startup hub, they shared a joint statement condemning one of the new proposals for the new um, Finnish coalition government. The, it's a proposal that they've set out concerning immigrants. So in the statement by Startup Foundation, they urge that the new government uh, reconsider the proposed immigration changes that would see immigrants have to leave the country if they lost their job and they didn't get a new one within three months. So the statement was also co-signed by Slush, um, the Shortcut, Junction and Dash, um, and it shares the concerns that the startup ecosystem in Finland will lose out 
on many high skilled workers if the recruitment process takes like it can take well over a month at times um you know and three months is a very short time really for highly skilled workers to get a new job and move into a new position so overall the statement is calling for finland to be an inclusive and diverse explaining that it's needed to be uh that's what's needed to be more competitive in a global market Fiona, thanks for that. I, I I find that pretty interesting because I think Robin's going to talk about this later where Sequoia came out with their new mapping of talent tool. I mean, uh, Marika, what, what's your take on that? I mean, how, uh, I, I mean, what, what is it? What, what is the law in Germany, for example? I, I have no idea. Kate, you're, you're in Germany as well. I mean, mm. you, you have to have a job to keep your visa. How, how long, what's the, what's the uh, Arbeitslos spectrum there? To be honest, I'm not super sure, but I hope it's not that way, to be honest. Yeah, I, I, it doesn't sound right to me. I think you do get, I, I think it was six months here. Um, the other bit I would note is that I know in Germany, for example, a lot of employers, you need to give three months notice. Um, exactly, so yeah. that the lead periods for when you get a job and when you start a job can particularly considering delays at the foreigner's office, which probably is is the same over in um, Scandinavia, um, means that, you know, you could be waiting months to just to get your um, approval for your new employer. So it's, you know, a month is ridiculous. For sure. Especially, I mean, in those times where it definitely takes a bit longer to maybe find a suitable job. Let's move over to a subject that, well, I'll, I'll say it used to be near and dear to my heart. I mean, it, it, it still sort of is, but you know Crap, what? Crappy photos used to be dear to your heart. <laughs> exactly. I'll tell you what, my cameras and lenses gather more dust than anything else these days. But uh, Kate, yeah, apparently uh, generative AI is also going to solve the crappy photo problem. Is that correct? Yeah. Exactly. This is a great story. I mean, and let's be really clear here when we talk about this, we're not talking about suddenly generative AI has got to make you a great photographer. Rather, it makes you a great editor. So, you know, you need that, you do need something, you know, if, if you're a standalone photographer, um, your job isn't lost yet, but you may be competing, competing with other soon. Competitive photographs. So, I mean, this company is called Let's Enhance and their core kind of product suite is called Clade AI. And basically what they do is they, um, they use generative AI, specifically deep convolutional neural networks to, um, I guess, edit photos, um, you know, online. So things like resizing, um, changing colors, in, installing backgrounds or backdrops to photos, tightening images, all this sort of stuff so that you're really able to go from, you know, a pretty ordinary photo. I guess a really good case in point is something like food photography. And I know when I was writing cookbooks, food photography can look horrendous. So if you imagine something like you are a, um, a food delivery company, like say Vault or Deliveroo or Uber Eats, and you're dealing with the food delivery photos that the restaurants send you, they can be pretty dire. You know, so you, there's a way to standardize that. Um, you can also use it for things like, um, uh, you know, storyboarding before you do a photo shoot, things like that. So I think what kind of the why, why I really like this sort of as a use case. I mean, this is an established company. They were doing this before we started hearing about, you know, mid journey and all these sort of, um, flavor of the month, big tech companies. Um, and also what I like is that, um, 
it's a commercial offering that solves a, you know, a persistent business problem. So they've managed to go from something that's quite academic to something that's commercial. And they're able to, um, you know, be almost one of the leading companies we're seeing now in companies that are coming out with solutions that are, you know, using generative AI to solve these business problems. I think that's pretty cool. Marika, we've got you here. I'm going to ask you the big question. Is AI going to take all of our jobs? No, definitely not. <laughs> but about, about this feature, I love it. Especially like the scene creation feature mm. I saw in the article. It looks so cool. And when I it's read really it, cool. I directly thought about those, you know, those Facebook, Instagram pages where you see the super awkward photos of like Photoshop fades <laughs> from celebrities <laughs> and commercials where like people so have true. accidentally three arms or three hands mm. so i guess um yeah that's definitely a necessary innovation yeah and i'd be also interested to do what to see what they can do with this in terms of maybe other uh, digital offerings maybe video or or other types of mediums as well that could be super interesting uh moving on kate i have Ooh. a question for you absolutely did you order the code red did you order oh. the code red is that a Tom Cruise movie? That is that is a classic Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson scene uh, oh, and that, that yeah, results yeah. in you can't handle the truth. And what I'm leading you into here, Kate, is how mm. do you get the U.S. Marine Corps as a client? Yeah, this is such a story. I mean, I've been following this company for a little while. They're called, um, very, very slightly awkward to say um, name, but hey, whatever, three your mind which could be anything really in um, for a Berlin startup, it could be literally anything. So we have the, the numeral three cover, uh, followed by the letters your mind. So that's with a Y, not, not a UR, which is a, a bonus point there, I might add. Um, so what they did was they basically have got this um, contract, if you like, with the US Marine Corps. And what the company does is it's found a way to, um, I guess, analyze the um, utility of um, additive manufacturing, which is also known as 3D printing. So if you imagine um, companies that are, have um, lots of equipment where they need to have lots of parts on spec or quite quickly, often they're dealing with legacy equipment, which may have been, you know, no longer being produced, but it's still being used because, you know, these million dollar plus machineries, um, you know, they last 50 years sometimes. So, you know, you need to produce those parts. And what this company does is they're not doing 3D printing, but what they've developed is, I guess, a way that you can analyze um, the parts um, and you can, you can really just determine what kind of parts are best suited for um, 3D printing. So, um, for example, what are the costs and the um, manufacturing requirements? And so is it is it going to be more financially beneficial and, and time-wise to print something yourself or to get it done elsewhere, of course? So um, what, they, what they actually did was they um, – one of the kind of companies that they were working with is Philips. So you might know Philips. You know, they do a lot of hardware, a lot of personal consumer goods, lighting, stuff like that. Um, but they also do – all this kind of stuff as well. So dealing with military contracts and things like that. And so what the company was able to join them in a, um, I guess, a joint endeavor where they were able to um, 
gained this contract. They did sort of a year's um, first, I guess the first one was kind of a scope mission where you're determining the, the problems that need to be solved and the way to do it. And this is sort of a continuation of that. And it's worth, you know, 2.5 million. So it's a commercial offering. You know, the company was only founded in 2014, which is not that long ago for, an industri for the industrial space. And they've got over 30 million in funding. So I've seen a, comp a few companies kind of do this, this kind of, you know, working with the military. And I think what it really shows is this idea that if you've got this aspirational client, the person that you really want to, you know, it's your dream client, find a way, an another way to do it. It might not be approaching them directly, but going through their, their sort of ex existing suppliers or existing companies where you can partner with um, something they're lacking that you can provide to augment their, um, like their bid for tenders and things like that. Marika, what do you what do you think about this? I mean, got legs? Would you invest in it? <laughs> no, we haven't so far, at least. Now it's also a bit too late for us. But I like um, the thinking about. I mean, in the end, it's always about word of mouth, right? And mm. it's always about building a trustworthy relationship, especially on those verticals and industries where mm. sales processes probably take a bit longer. Plus, you have like super high switching costs. So if you work with a supplier once, you may not switch and especially not switch to a new trendy startup. Um, so in the end, I think it's super crucial to establish first trust already up front before you can even talk to those large corporate customers or even states so mm. that you're even able to initiate conversations or even get the buying process uh, started in the first place. And I mean, I think you see that in lots in all kind of um, industrial companies where if you basically just act like a supplier of parts and ingredients, um, yeah, where switching suppliers always takes a lot of money and time for the company. So they really need to trust you and you just already need a well-branded company, so to say. All right. Well, thanks for that. Um, moving on, Robin, talking about cities and tech. And Tech City. I mean, it used to be Tech Nation here in the UK, but apparently that's not a thing anymore. But now there's a new Tech City? Yeah, so the news came out this morning. Uh, Fiona wrote the story, but I, I don't want to put her on the spot. So I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll just share briefly sort of uh, what, what's being planned. So, um, you know, this whole concept of a startup campus where you bring everyone together in sort of a, a combination between co-working spaces, accelerator, fab labs, all of that. Um, so this whole, this whole concept of uh, having the biggest startup campus in Europe was a race between Maria Zero One over in Helsinki and Station F in Paris. But now Lithuania is apparently throwing its hat into the ring. Uh, they're planning an upgrade of an existing uh, project called Tech City with a Z. Uh, and they're investing uh, about 100 million euros for starters, I think, uh, to develop what will be the largest tech campus in Europe, according to them, when it opens uh, next year standing at 55,000 square meters, which is quite a lot. So so I've, I've, I just find it interesting that everyone is, seems to want to have the biggest, but of all places, Vilnius doesn't seem to me like the place where Europe's largest startup campus should originate from. Or is it just me? I can believe it, actually. I think it's um, absolutely ambitious, but I think it's warranted. I think there's a lot of stuff happening in Lithuania at the moment, um, particularly they're trying to get um, international talent over as well, so companies to um, have a presence there. So I think this is um, well-timed, actually. 
Yeah, fantastic. And I'm, I'm definitely going to be one of the first to, to want to visit if I'm invited. Yes, Fiona. Uh, yeah, I was just um, thinking about this morning as well, because what also might add to the size is, you know, they've got like the co-living there as well. So that probably mm. will add to the size of it. But at the same time, co-living, that's like, would you ever leave work? I don't know. Does that work? So I know that they do it in some places. I know a place in Ireland that attempted to do that kind of thing and it didn't really work out, you know. But, um, well, we we all, we all did that for about the past two years, didn't we? Co-living, <laughs> <laughs> co-working. Co I mean, Jesus, that was a forced experiment. Um, Marika, where does uh, Munich factor into all this? Why is Munich not making a, a play for being the, the biggest tech city yeah, in, in all of Europe? Yeah, I don't know. I mean... Funny fact, we've been ranked, I think, last year above Berlin, actually, <gasps> as the, the startup hub in Germany. So that's already a good uh, a good sign. So let's see, maybe next year. Yeah, I mean, Bits and Pretzels got Obama and they got great skiing exactly. right over the border. So and I'm, good I'm, beer, right? <laughs> and, and, and very good beer. I'm, I'm all for it. Uh, Robin, you, you've got a show list here that's like a mile and a half long. What, what do you want to talk about next? I'll keep it short, but one of the things that stood out for me in terms of uh, in the news this week was uh, Margrethe Vestager. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Uh, but Margrethe Vestager, uh, the well-known EU uh, antitrust chief, uh, well-known for a crackdown, hefty fines uh, on big tech. She is in the running uh, for the top job at the European Investment Bank after being put forward by her home country of Denmark, because you always have to be sort of assigned by a EU member state for that kind of uh, job. Uh, so Vestager, uh, she's been in her post at the European Commission since 2014. Uh, she's finishing her second five term uh, late next year. Well, that was supposed to happen. But if she takes this job and she actually gets it, that means she will have to step down earlier, uh, which I think will make Google and Amazon and Apple and Meta and all of these big tech companies really, really, really happy. So is is she the third entrant in the cage fight? Oh man, don't even mention the cage fight. Oh, I Jesus. muted the term on Twitter. It got so bad. All right. All so right. Fair enough. I'll roll it back from the cage fight. Marika, what do you think about this? I mean, someone who's who's uh, infamously known uh, for cracking down on big tech in a big position at the EIB. Is this is this a good thing for Europe? Is this a bad thing? I mean, hard to say, right? I, I just hope, I mean, good luck for her candidacy, obviously. And I hope that she takes it very serious and then resolves all the potential conflicts of interest in advance. And then, yeah, let's see. Who knows, right? Yeah, fu funny you should mention that because uh, the European Commission president, von der Leyen, actually asked Vestager to avoid any conflict of interest in a letter that she wrote uh, related to her candidacy. And uh, she said in response quote unquote, I fully share your wish to avoid any conflict of interest, be it real or perceived, which I think is a nice way to phrase it. I mean, come on. She's a politician, right? Is there such a thing as avoiding conflict of interest as, uh, as being a politician? I don't think that's possible. Anyway, anyway, it is part of the game. Anyway, let's check in with Mr. Nick in Groningen uh, on the wonderful world of AI, which is all going to take our jobs. No, it's not. <laughs> but, it, but it might, but it could, but it probably won't. Um, Buttons pressed. As, uh, as always, a pretty uh, pretty newsful week uh, if you look at global AI. But I uh, I picked out just three stories for uh, for Europe. 
Uh, the first one starting with OpenAI, um, which doesn't sound very European until you uh, check the, the back channel news that over 100,000 stolen chat GPT slash OpenAI accounts are now uh, for sale on the uh, darker versions of the interwebs. Um, now, 100,000 doesn't sound like a lot, but 40,000 of those are from the Europe, Middle East, Africa region. So if you were an early um, user of ChatGPT, and I'm talking early, early, like ChatGPT 3 time, not 3.5, not 4, but you know, way back when there is a possibility your account has been compromised, uh, OpenAI has done some research into this, and uh, they found out it was not a data breach on their side, but was actually... Uh, people whose hardware, their machines, laptops, etc., were compromised via some sort of malware. So OpenAI is doing what they can to uh, to figure this out there and to help uh, customers. But the best thing you can do, and yes, I mean you, you, and you, and definitely you, Dan, uh, is make sure you have your OpenAI two-factor authentication turned on. There's no excuse not to do that. Because you can imagine somebody who has your credentials gets to read all your OpenAI chat history. And I've been asking OpenAI to generate some pretty up shit, man. <laughs> Jeez, well, that's scary. Yeah. And and if you just you know how many people are, are sending stuff to OpenAI with uh, company names or competitor names or job titles or now you know pro- new product information. Yeah. Uh, moving on to some slightly happier news because I, I don't think that's a you know great great news for the week, but it is important. Um, Dan, you wrote a really good article about Easy Translate. You remember well, those you. guys? I do. I spoke to the founder, Frederick. Uh, they have a the, the bootstrapped company for over a decade, uh, just got an investment earlier this year, and now they're going all in on the AI content generation, um, which I thought was kind of interesting because they've been partnered, I'm doing big air quotes, partnered with copywriters for a long time. Uh, and these copywriters, willingly or unwillingly, are basically training LLMs that are going to put themselves out of business. That's the way I see it. But are they are they really going to put themselves out of business, or does it become well, what, uh, an explosion of of mediocre content? So uh, uh, your last stop of generative AI is a uh, a trained copywriter makes a lot of sense to me, right? Let the uh, let the machines do the hard work. Have an expert uh, standing at the end of it and uh, yeah, use that feedback loop to train. Um, specific, uh, not LLMs, but I think SM, SLM, small language models, um, that can be then, you know, customized for every client and uh, every project and, and, and. Well, that's certainly what uh, Easy Translate is betting on. And uh, I was really happy to hear, Dan, that you, uh, you asked CEO Frederick Peterson about this job thing. Um, you know, will the copywriters eventually be put out of a job? And he was uh, pretty adamant that uh, no, or at least not for a long time yet that their work will definitely change, um, but uh, supply and demand in the copywriting world is uh, is very much a uh, outsized or outbalanced game right now. Speaking of games, uh, something that uh, caught my attention this week was an article on The Guardian about how Wimbledon Tennis, summertime right now, is going to be introducing AI-powered commentary to their uh, coverage for this year's uh, games. And I thought, well, that's interesting, wow. pointless, but maybe interesting. Let me uh, let me dive a little deeper here. And <laughs> this circles all the way back to, I think, 10 episodes ago when we were talking about IBM's Watson. What had happened to mm. Watson? And, um, well, the ambitions of Watson are, are much smaller than they used to be, but very much uh, deeper and more focused. And Watson's XAI platform is the tool that is going to be used to do this uh, AI coverage. 
Um, and they've been quietly training it over, I guess, some time or some years uh, for the, and I quote, the unique language of tennis. And uh, the goal for this year will be offering AI-generated audio commentary and captions for all its online highlight videos. And and there was just something a little bit there for me that this this doesn't seem deep enough. It it seems fun, but but why would IBM and and why would Wimbledon do this? Um, and if you dig a little bit deeper, then you understand that uh, uh, IBM's Watson X platform can do quite a lot more than this, and has started to uh, actually analyze footage of tennis players. And uh, what they're saying is with this new audio commentary and, and the new processing that I assume must happen to make that happen, says uh, a quote from somebody not named at IBM, this new insight will help tennis fans to uncover anomalies and potential surprises in the singles draw, which would not be apparent by looking only at players' rankings, unquote, which has nothing to do with commentary. So there's there's something a little deeper going on here. I think IBM is is going to be doing some smart uh, uh, analysis of players based on images and trying to uh, do oh. some smart ranking and uh, um, uh, analysis of you know what 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 can we see from a player's way of playing that isn't necessarily obvious to the human eye, but when you start feeding it through AI models. Does this change the way we are going to do gambling? Does it does it change how we're going to do sponsorships? Does it change how we do things like training, customized training based on AI, visual? Wow, head blown. That's all I've got for AI this week. <laughs> Nick, are you are you telling me that IBM is getting into Moneyball? Uh, it, it could be. Yes, I hadn't. Uh, yes, I, I mean I don't know that, but yeah. now that you say that, that that's exactly what I think it's going to happen. Fiona, I know you wanted to, you're an adamant tennis player. You wanted to <laughs> chime in here. I like my concerns about that are like this whole, the fan zone, you know, and, you know, like all these technologies helping fans out or giving them like another part of the sport that they're watching. Like, I just, I really like my concern is that they're going to take the fun out of the sport. You know what I mean? If there's too much analysis and I always go back with my example of like race riding as in horse race riding uh, and the pressure that's put on jockeys when they're getting like backed to ride a horse, obviously someone's putting down good money, but they come in there and like everybody's an expert, everybody is a riding expert and the hassle that some of those jockeys, if the horse didn't perform well, that they get because there's so much analysis of how to ride a horse that they get going into the like the the parade ring afterwards is awful to hear and like are people going to be sitting on their couches starting to analyze literally every single little thing about a tennis player it just takes the fun out of the match then for me so that's my two cents on the other hand, if you've seen an American football match any time in the last 10 years, the amount of additional statistics that are provided to the player fans mm, uh, exactly. is mind-blowing. Yeah, I am aware that there is some really good tech out there. I mean, like, I'm a huge fan of a lot of the platforms that are doing it. I use a lot of the analysis tech for my own training. But at the same time, when it's giving to the fans, I'm not sure that that's such a really good thing, you know? Like, I, I that's just my two cents worth. I would look at it, yeah, slightly differently because I know there is a lot of interest in monetizing these stats for the fans, like, for example, the NFT model. But there's also been a lot of attempts over the years with wearable tech. So, for example, a player on a, on a sports field will have some type of wearable metric, for example, so that you can feel the person's heart, bait, heart rate sorry, with a um, 
a, a co-joining um, sensor that you're wearing. There's been, um, you know, uh, balls that have sensors in them, all these um, shoes, all this sort of stuff. And so I think that if you combine that with the AI, you're going to get something really interesting and something that fans will pay for. So we have a, we have a, a guest on the show. And I want to know from Marike, how is AI impacting your life? And I mean, professionally, or if you're into any sports, how is it changing the sports that you play, etc. <laughs> Good question. Sports, not really, to be honest. So I'm doing a lot of running and cycling. And here I'm not really using any AI stuff, but definitely several of sensors and watts and frequency <laughs> measurements. Although, so maybe just another note on the on the last news. So I think, I mean, from a competition and fairness perspective, I think those features can be something interesting because, I mean, then at least you really know that a game was played fair if you have all the necessary measurements and there's definitely something that would detect everything. On the other hand, I think most of the cheating is not really happening during the game, right? Especially if you look at running or race cycling, it's usually the, the, the cheat doesn't happen during the game, but before. Um, so they, here probably AI cannot really help, but yeah, you just need other kind of measurements. Uh, so that's just a note on that. And then maybe how AI is supporting us as VCs in our day-to-day -day life. Um, there are quite some new like uh, workshops on that, actually, how we can become maybe a bit more efficient and DDs, you can very much like leverage AI doing sourcing, for example, uh, using all kind of new sourcing um, strategies, uh, scraping strategies, uh, become faster in writing articles or DD analyses, investment memos, um, or just like usual productivity features you can use by writing mails, Slack, and so on. So I think there's a lot that can be helpful. Uh, on the other hand, sometimes I'm also a bit afraid of using it too much because then in the end, you maybe just stop thinking in general. It just always just first type it in into JGPT and then something will just pop up, which is usually also better than what I would write, to be honest. Um, but, but yeah. Yeah, make sure it stays an assistant and a companion rather than a Replace. Yeah, exactly. But to be yeah. honest, I mean, I would never use any like company or names or any confidential stuff. Uh, yeah. I think that's never really safe if you type it into Google as well. Interesting stuff. And speaking of VC firms doing interesting stuff, so our friends over at Sequoia have come out with an interesting platform slash research report slash guide uh, called Atlas. Uh, so that's an interactive guide focused on the engineering talent and the tech talent that we have here in Europe. So um, just to wind back a little bit, so Sequoia's uh, released Atlas uh, this week. Um, and as we all know, it's a general truth in, in tech globally. Um, it's very, very difficult for startups to, to hire, to source, to recruit uh, engineers, developers, data scientists and whatnot. Um, and the same goes for Europe. And even though Europe has a lot of talent, uh, we all know that as well. Uh, over 3 million engineers uh, in the block alone. 
Um, so how do you how do you marry those two? How do you bring those together uh, to each other's benefit? Uh, and the VC firm, uh, they've taken an interesting step. They've launched Sequoia Atlas, uh, this interactive tool. Uh, and their goal is to provide insights into the engineering and other tech talents across Europe, uh, helping founders uh, who are building in Europe to navigate the, the various ecosystems that we have here, because of course we have geographical uh, challenges, uh, but also to figure out where to focus their recruitment efforts, especially if they're hiring remotely. Uh, so the report cites a couple of interesting data points. I'll, I won't name too many of them, but uh, this one's interesting. 59% uh, of startups across Europe currently boast uh, distributed teams. And of those, 78% uh, stated that their engineers specifically work in a distributed manner. So that seems to be quite in vogue in engineering uh, circles to work remotely. So that's something uh, to keep in mind for all startups that are out there recruiting or trying to recruit. Sequoia has developed a methodology in order to identify uh, what they call local density spikes. Um, I know I'm getting in a, in a bit detail here, but it's interesting. They have 14 different specializations and they found 24 cities in Europe with a high concentration of specialist skills and things like security, front-end frameworks, data science, you name it. Uh, and out of that research uh, come some interesting facts. For example, Germany is branded a hotspot for robotics and drones and autonomous vehicles. And actually Munich and Stuttgart came out on top rather than Berlin as well. Uh, but for gaming and graphics, for example, Helsinki is a top outlier talent concentration, uh, followed by Vilnius and Stockholm and, and a lot more uh, to be gained from, from perusing uh, that report. Uh, if you want to check it out, it's at atlas.sequoiacap.com. And we also wrote an article on TechU with the main takeaways. So feel free to check that out as well. Before we Call it a day. Marika, just real quick on that. I mean, uh, Thoughts, is, is is Early Bird doing something similar? How are you supporting your portfolio companies in their recruitment efforts? Um, we have an awesome VP people. Uh, so we basically have an operational team that's supporting our portfolio companies with all kinds of questions around recruiting, but also marketing or, or anything else. So she's helping a lot on that. Uh, but I think it's an awesome initiative, and we also see that uh, in our portfolio, but even within our own team, since we also have a tech team, um, that it's just super, super hard to find tech talent, and you just really need to stay flexible as an organization and, uh, yeah, set up hybrid or remote working options and, and models um, to even just be able to also attract tech talent, since obviously they're are the the powerful supply side so in the end also if you want to hire them you definitely need to have some yeah attractive um models set up nick you had one more thing yeah i had a question for you actually dan i was wondering are you uh are, oh, you, are you planning on crashing any festivals this summer Oh, I, I wish I could. I know what you're talking about, and it breaks my heart not to be with you at Pirate Summit. When is it? it next is, it Thursday? Is next week, this... but that's not what I'm talking about, you humble mother. Huh? <laughs> oh, crashing any festivals. Yeah, I was on some BBC thing. If you got a VPN or if you live in the UK, go go look up crashed 800 million festival fail. It's a BB. Yeah, I was on the BBC. It's no big deal. It's like an hour long it's like a, um, uh, documentary. It's like a standard of, uh, Tuesday. Yeah, no big deal. It's it's no big deal. Oh, you're too humble. It's definitely worth a watch, listeners. I encourage you to get that VP active and watch it. It's, um, it's astonishing. <laughs> on that note, I'm going to take advantage of it. And uh, Robin, I hope I'm not stepping on your line here, but I, I'm just going to do it. So, uh, what time does Sean Connery attend Wimbledon? 
it's uh it's around 10ish i think and on that bombshell, that is all the time we've got for this week, folks. Thanks for joining us on lead vocals. I've had Marika Gerke, Fiona Alston on lead guitar. As always, Kate Lawrence on drums. Nick Stevens on, I'm going to go with Cowbell this week. And Robin Wouters holding down the low end on bass. My name is Dan Taylor. That's it for us, folks. Have a great weekend. We are out of here. Right, once, but just one person was then talking. Well, yeah, that was that yeah. was just me and James getting drunk on <laughs> exactly. it. Exactly, <laughs> it's basically what we did. <laughs>